Our second reading is taken from portions of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The word of the Lord. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know life oh, yeah. is all about expression. You only live once and oh, you're not yeah, coming oh, back. Yeah. So express yourself, yeah. So aside from the little kids wanting to stay in because they're like, oh, dance party's happening here, there's a small segment of you who actually know this song. It's sad that you do um, because you were at a certain age in a certain era. The interesting thing about this song that was sung by a hip-hop group that was popular in the late 80s and early 90s is that the lyrics of this song could have been written at any point from the 1960s to today. The basic message, express yourself, You've got to be you. Don't tell me what I cannot do. 
Let me be me. I mean, isn't that the American mantra? Isn't that what we talk about, what we think about, what every advertisement says, what nearly every song in pop culture is trying to tell you? And it's how we think of ourselves. Even if we aren't really jumping into pop culture heavily, it's our natural tendency. We're doing it all the time. The clothes that we choose to wear, the music that we choose to listen to, all of our interests, where you live and in what kind of house you live and what kind of car you buy, are all part of the choices that all of us can make as individuals. And that's just it. In America, it's all about you and me as individuals making those choices on our own. And all of those choices add up to who I am. It's my identity. You know, part of this goes back to the beginning of America, really. How do we define liberty? In the earliest stages of the country, liberty was defined as freedom from. Freedom from tyrannical government. That's a pretty good thing. But combined with our radical individualism, we've taken the idea of freedom and liberty, and we now live basically like this. I want to live free from constraints of any sort. Free from constraints by any other people, which ultimately means free from constraints by you on me. And this is, we think this in our heads, all of us do. If I can't do what I want, then I can't be me. Or I certainly can't be happy. And the thing that makes me most defensive is if I feel like you are infringing on my rights, my freedoms. Our aims as human beings, and especially as Americans, tend to be very personal. I have my own achievement goals in career or family or school, or I'm after my own pleasure. I'm here to fill my own stomach. I'm not that worried if yours is empty. Express yourself. You got to be you. So that's a sort of negative critique of our personal individualism, right? The question is, am I going too far there? And I think we have to think about that. We have to be aware that the the individualism and this freedom from is the water in which we swim. It's the air we breathe. And we've talked about this over the past few weeks as we're looking at relationships and creating the church as an extended family, that we are primarily relational beings. If that's true, if we are primarily relational beings then is our free-from, constraint-free, do-what-I-want culture really what's best for us? You know, we've talked about being the, the need for relationships, and we've looked at the scriptures, how in Genesis, God saw that the man was, it was not good for him to be alone, and how we're made to know God and be known by God. And so ultimately, we are, because we're made in the image of God, relational creatures made for relationship with God and one another. But this is not much different than what psychology or sociology would point to as well. For years, the idea of attachment theory has been out there in psychology, which is basically that when an infant has a parental unit, usually a mom, whom they can have a close attachment to, it has a profound positive effect on them. 
And when they don't, it can have a profound negative effect on them. We are relational creatures. Just observe the Petri dish of any high school in America. What you find there is that people are desperate for friendships. It's why cliques form in high schools. And you know what? Cliques are actually not all bad. They can be exclusive, but actually in a clique, whether it's the skater crowd or just some good friends that you have from elementary school or you're in the band or you're on this team, you have these cliques and circles that give you a sense of place and identity. You want, we all want to know where we belong. One study suggested that the course of a lifetime, looking back on friendships during teenage years, was one of the most important aspects of finding wholeness and healthiness throughout life. We need best friends when we're 16. And studies have also shown that it's important for aging well. There was a 1938 study, one of the the most longitudinal, there's a way to say that, I think, studies of people that started in 1938 at Harvard University. They tracked 268 men throughout their lifetime. These were college students at Harvard in 1938. In the year 2012, George Valiant, who was overseeing this study for the final three decades, came to his conclusions on what made for a good life. This is Harvard University sociology. This is not a Christian textbook. What he found was that what matters most for a good life and for aging well was not money, it was not health. It was the warmth and depth of your relationships. Our culture is built to maximize personal freedom and individual success. But if we are inherently relational, is that what's best for us? Or is our version of individualism without constraints contrary to our relational need? In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, Paul is talking to the Christians in Corinth, the church, and he's calling them to relational wholeness by restraining their freedom and their rights by allowing others to impinge on their freedom, by sacrificing what it was theirs to do or have for the benefit of others. And he's saying that when we constrain our freedoms for the good of others, that's where relational wholeness and health are found. That's where the best life is found. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, see what it's talking about, and then see how it might apply to us. So the situation in in Corinth is an odd one, I must say. For those of you who don't spend a lot of time examining this sort of thing, it's just kind of weird. They're talking about not eating food sacrificed to idols. Most of us think, great, I haven't done that ever, so we're safe. But this was a pretty major issue in Corinth that was also an issue in the book of Romans. And the issue was basically this. Meat in that day and age was very rare and very expensive. The average peasant never ate meat. The only time you had meat was at a big celebration like a wedding or or when there was a big major festival. Meat was very often, whether it was lamb or goat or cow, it it was reserved for when you were having uh, a festival worship in a pagan temple. You see this too, actually, in Judaism, of course, was when they had the Day of Atonement or they had Passover. That's when you would actually eat meat. 
They would gather in Jerusalem, sacrifice the animals, and then get to eat the leftovers. Well, in these cultures, often the place that you had meat was around pagan temples. The animals were sacrificed, and then the meat was served up in the marketplace. And so if you went to a dinner party or a restaurant or were part of a citywide festival, like the Oktoberfest sort of thing, the meat that you were eating very likely could have been offered in pagan worship. And so that was the primary issue. Paul is dealing with two sets of people, the strong and the weak. And in verse 4, he's affirming the strong. He says, Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. Basically, look, if meat was sacrificed to an idol, so what? It's a statue. It doesn't mean anything. It's not really God. You can eat it. You're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But in the same paragraph, he says, however, verse 7, not all possess this knowledge, this freedom. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really being offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Some people, whether they were Jewish and always had this re reaction against idolatry, naturally so, or even if they were a part heavily involved in pagan idolatry, felt like they couldn't eat this meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul is affirming both sides. He's saying, look, you who are strong in conscience, that's right. You have liberty and freedom. You can eat this meat. There's nothing to it. But are you aware of your weak brothers and sisters, those whose conscience are defiled, who feel like this is sinful, who are confused by you eating this meat? Are you willing to sacrifice your freedom and your rights for somebody else and for their faith? And that's Paul's ultimate response. In verse 8 and 9, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And in verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He's talking about stumbling in their faith, in their spiritual life. He's not talking about simply offending them in some general way or some cultural way. He's actually talking about things that we do and have the right to do that are negatively affecting somebody else's faith. And Paul's summary is something like this. A truly strong believer is not somebody who exerts their freedom and their rights. A truly strong believer is somebody who is most sensitive to those who have a weak conscience who are new in the faith, or are unbelievers. In chapter 10, he's restating essentially the same argument, but he comes at it from a different angle. In chapter 10, he basically starts off with, look, everything is lawful. Do whatever you want. You're in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are free to do whatever you want. Because we know we are forgiven in Christ, and religion and, and law no longer has bearings on us. If you're in Christ, do whatever you want. But what do you want? If you are truly in Christ, what you want will change. When we have true faith in Christ, it transforms our desires and our wants. No longer is my primary want for me. Paul says in verse 
24, it's not seeking our own good. And in verse 33, not seeking our own advantage. You can do whatever you want, but is what you want to do for you? Is what I want to do primarily for me? Or, as Paul goes on to say in this chapter, is it primarily for others? He talks about building up. Are the choices we're making in life building others up? Is it for the good of our neighbor? And ultimately, his primary filter is, does it lead to their salvation? Does it draw them closer to God? Because ultimately, Paul's purpose is not to live for himself, but for God's glory. For God and for God's glory. So, Paul says, hey, look, eat meat sacrificed to idols. In fact, do whatever you want. If what you want is completely selfless and for the glory of God and for the benefit spiritually of others, Paul's not worried about what you're going to do. The sum of Paul's view on freedoms and rights as a Christian are when it comes to matters of guilt and sin and faith, what you and I think and feel and want matters less than what our brothers and sisters do. In the middle chapter that we didn't read, chapter 9, Paul uses himself as an example. And he's talking again about restraining his rights, not exerting what he has for his own good, but how he restrains it for the good of others. And in chapter 9, and we're not going to read it all, he, he lists three areas that he says I have the right to, to take advantage of. He says, I have the right to eat and drink whatever I want. Then he goes on next to say, I have the right to be married if I want to. Many of the apostles are married. Cephas is married. I've chosen not to be married. I've chosen not to have a wife. And then he goes on and says, I have the right as a preacher, as a missionary, as an orator to get paid. Every other rhetorician in this culture, every other rabbi or teacher or philosopher was being paid by patrons, by the people who were benefiting from his teaching and message. Paul says, I have the right to be paid, but I have restrained all of these rights for your good. Because I know that at times what I eat and drink can be offensive to somebody who has a weak conscience. I've restrained my right to get married because I can be a more effective minister of the gospel apart from that. And I have restrained my right to get paid by you because I know it will put you in a client-patron-client relationship that is going to be confusing for you. I will restrain everything I have the right to do for your good, for your spiritual good. He says in verse 19, I'm free from all constraints. I'm free from any of you telling me what to do, but I've chosen to become a servant to all. Why? Because I want to win more people to Christ. I want more people to experience the gospel. I want more people to see and taste God. And so he says, I've become all things to all people. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. And, and what's interesting here is many of us actually have the quality of doing this, but it's usually for our own good. It's because we're people pleasers and we want to be accepted. And so we will be the kind of person that others want us to be so that they'll love us and accept us. But that has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. He says, I will be what you need 
so that you will grow into the knowledge and love of God for you, so that you will come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to win you, not to me, but to God. To Paul, freedom isn't liberation from obligations and relational constraint. That's the way we think of freedom. I'm free from anybody putting anything on me. For Paul, freedom is first before God. It's freedom from sin and death. And freedom for serving God and serving others. Something that apart from Christ, we can only do with our willpower for limited amounts of time. But in Christ, he's now free to truly love others and serve God. How is Paul's approach different than our own? So we have that culture of freedom and individualism. And what I find is that many of the conflicts that are created between friends and even in family are about defending and protecting our rights and our status. And I feel like if somebody is infringing upon who I am, that's when I'm going to be most reactive and defensive. And we could think about how we defend our rights, not in eating meat sacrificed to idols, but just in everyday things, right? Think about our view as Americans of our money and our property. Who wants to let anybody outside of your immediate family weigh in on how you spend your money? None of us do. It's my money. It's my house. It's my car. I can do with it what I want. What Paul is talking about is holding all of our stuff open-handedly, saying, yeah, this is money that's in my bank account. This is the car that I'm driving. But how can I use it to glorify God and serve others? It's a very different approach to personal property. Or how do we think about our free time, my alone time? We think about it as ours. And essentially, we can do whatever we want with our free time so long as we're not hurting other people. But even our view of our alone time encourages self-absorption and selfishness. Think about how we're always pushing for our rights and our need for recognition. If you go to any good-sized company and look at the job titles, it's comical. Everyone is either a director or a vice president. Because nobody wants to be a broom pusher. I mean, a filer, a phone answerer. Nope, director of phone operations. Vice president of engineering and cleanliness. We're so full of need to be recognized. And we need credit for things too. You know, I find myself feeling defensive or guarded about whether I'm the one who found the restaurant or I'm the one who, who found the band that everyone now is listening to. I, I found them first, you know. I want to get credit for you two getting to know each other, and so I should be included when you guys get together. We're constantly looking for credit at work, at home, with friends. Why? Because we're guarding our rights and ourselves. Our culture of radical individualism, pushing for maximum freedom, has actually redefined love. You know, we talk about 
protecting one another's rights. And so we use this word in modern America, we use the word tolerance, right? And actually I think tolerance is a very good thing, but I also think tolerance mixed with American individualism has pushed in the wrong direction. Here's the, the basic idea of tolerance. You must respect everyone's choices and actions. But you know what this breeds? It's really protecting me from you restraining my liberty. Our version of tolerance is keeping others at arm's length. The gospel, on the other hand, doesn't ask, how can I not offend you? It asks, how can I love you? How can I give myself to you? How can I live for your spiritual and eternal benefit and not my own or my own immediate desires? Our modern view of tolerance separates us. You know why? It facilitates avoidance and uninvolvement with those with whom you disagree. Our modern view of tolerance says don't offend that person. Well, the best way to not offend them is have nothing to do with them. So in many ways, our version of tolerance is not engaging, it's disengaging from people by nature. The gospel and Christian view of tolerance is learning how to love and care for those with whom you disagree. It's not saying you can't say they're wrong, it's saying, how can I love you even though I think you're wrong? How can I bless you and care for you and give myself for you even though we disagree? It causes me to engage those with whom I most disagree. Because the question is not, how can I not offend? It's, how can I love? If we had written 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, our wisdom would have been to the weak and the strong, stay away from each other. Make two churches. That way you can offend each other. Paul's version is, surrender your rights. Do what's best for the other person. Think how you can actively love and encourage their spiritual and eternal life. So how do we do this? Well, the basic reality is this. We can't. We are made for relationship. That's God's intended purpose for us. The Bible also tells us that we are sinful and broken. We are inherently selfish. We're going to, on our own nature, choose self over God and others every time. The only way we can begin down this road is if we have been transformed. The only way that we can begin to love people selflessly is if we have experienced this sort of selfless love. That's what the gospel's all about. There was one who did not seek his own advantage, who gave up all his rights for our benefit. In Philippians 2, which was our confession of faith today, we got the gospel message. Jesus Christ, who though he is God, did not exploit his divinity for his own advantage, but surrendered it for our good. He became one of us that we might know him. He died on the cross to reconcile us to God. He surrendered his rights so that we might gain freedom. When you have had a tremendous, transformative, profound experience with God in Jesus Christ, 
it begins to change us. We're finally free to be ourselves. Because ultimately, ourselves is reconciled to God. And until we're reconciled to God, we're constantly trying to find ourselves, defend ourselves, protect ourselves from others. Because our identity, our status, our worth is all what we make of it. But when we've been reconciled to God, we no longer are fighting that battle anymore. We have peace with God, and so we're finally able to be ourselves, which means we're finally able to be relational in the way God meant us to be. Selfless, sacrificial, not worrying if our rights are not fully protected, but surrendering and serving and giving. When we have met the God who loves us like this, our desires begin to change. Less for me and more for God and for others. The gospel, through the spirit transforming our thoughts, is the power to enable us to live like this for others. The gospel changes our questions. You see, most people's questions for religion are something like this. So what do I have to do? Or if I join your religion, what am I allowed to do? It's all about carving out what I'm supposed to do or what I can get away with. But when you've met Jesus Christ and you've experienced this kind of self-giving love for you, when you are finally reconciled to God, all of a sudden the questions become different. Not what can I get away with or what's the minimum I have to do, but how, how can I glorify God? Who, who can I build up? We move from what to how and who. And ultimately, this is more than just internal transformation, although that's a huge part of it. Ultimately, Paul's talking about external transformation. Paul's talking about actions. You need to go and do this. We need to stop seeking our own advantage, but seek others. And so I need to start asking questions like, I have my money and my property how can I use them for others' spiritual good and benefit? Or my free time. Now, I know some of us need to recharge longer than others. But at what point is my spare time, my free time, being used to bless and benefit others? How can I use my free time to connect and care for? We need to ask these sorts of questions on our own, together, what would it look like to surrender our rights and give to one another? You know, ultimately, we need to enter far deeper into people's lives. And here's the question. How would you know if you had even offended somebody spiritually? The only way you know is that you actually know them. You have to enter into relationship deep enough to know that something you're doing is benefiting or hurting them spiritually. In psychological circles, they talk about a support network. When you go through crisis or a health trouble, they say, what's your support network? What they mean by that is not just your legal family. They mean those people who are actually involved in your lives. It may be your aunt or cousin or brother, but it may be friends around you. Do you have that support network? People involved in my life and me and theirs. We need friendship. And in order to have this kind of friendship, we need to start committing to one another. And this is very hard for Americans because ultimately we want to protect our rights 
we want to keep people at arm's length because we're afraid it's going to press in on my liberties. But what Paul is calling us to, what the gospel calls us to, what the Bible calls us to, is to surrender our rights, which means we need to commit to one another. In Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, he said one of the profound changes that happened in American culture from the World War II generation to today is that fewer and fewer people are involved in leagues, like bowling leagues, or civic associations like Elks Lodges, or any form of membership like church membership. We want the freedom to go and come when we want to. We don't want to commit to anyone. But whether we do it formally, like in a church, trusting that the Spirit can work through membership and people I'm committing to, or whether we find ways to covenant with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, like finding two or three other people that you say, let's get lunch once a month for the next year. Maybe after church, the first Sunday of the month, we're going to all get lunch. Regardless of how easy or hard it is, we're going to commit to that and maybe do it for more than a year just to get to know one another when it's not convenient. Commit to other people. We are made for more tightly woven relationships. But our individualism, our distinctiveness, our desire for our rights, our rugged individualism, our pursuit of personal success and achievement, or the desire just to express myself individually causes us to separate. The gospel, the gospel calls us to acknowledge our need for one another, to commit to one another, to surrender our rights, to use our strengths for others' spiritual good, to live for God's purposes. So, this is hard to see, but it's two strings from this blanket. One is red and one is white. This is our American version of being in relationship with one another. It's, let's not offend one another. Let's let the red be red and the white, white. The gospel, the Christian version, is let's be woven together. Not just two people, but a whole system of people, a whole fabric of people woven in and out of each other's lives. Look, this isn't the most beautiful blanket, but it's warmer than this, and it's stronger than this. The Bible tells us we're made for something more like this than this. But in order to be this, we have to surrender our individualism, commit to one another, and live for the common good and care of one another just as Christ did for us. Let's pray. We are all one in Christ, and yet, Lord, we are individuals. We are selfish and sinful, but we need one another. I pray that you would allow us to experience your grace and mercy and love for us. Allow us to see areas of defensiveness and guardedness. And enable us, Lord, to love and care and give as you have given to us through Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.
voices let us sing. 